Hey, it's Pastor Randy again, just inviting you to enjoy another sermon, this time by Pastor Lori on being perfect. So turn in and enjoy part of the Sermon on the Mount. And now reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And you do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bye now. Well, good morning. As we continue to work through this amazing Sermon on the Mount, We've come to a point where Jesus shouts out, you have heard that it was said. He does this six times. He reminds his listeners six times about things that were common knowledge to them at the time. Now last week, Pastor Randy opened up the first three of these things. And this week, we're gonna look at the rest. But before we do, let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words of your son, Jesus. And we just pray that, that you will work them into our hearts, that you will work them into our lives, and that we may be the people that you have called us to be in this world. We pray all this and with thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen. So you've heard that it was said. Jesus didn't say, the law says. 
No, he was talking about something else totally different. He was talking about how the Pharisees and others had twisted the law to fit their ideas of how things should be. They had created their own traditions, which in most cases had become more important than and superseded God's law in their eyes. He speaks to the Pharisees about this in Mark 7, verse 8 and 9. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. He says it twice to them. How often do we hear that? Even today, Scripture is taken and twisted to match up with certain uh, old traditions or purposes or ideas or, or agendas that it was never intended for. But Jesus turns the Pharisees' traditions upside down. In fact, for all of the six you have herds, he throws out the traditional way of responding to people and introduces what many scholars have called transforming initiatives. He gives us the beautiful centerpiece of God's law, what it really means, how, are, how we are to, to take it. And he tells us, you're not going back to the old normal. That old normal doesn't work. Those traditions and so forth don't work. So here, here we are. I'm giving you a new normal, a new way to live. Because the traditional ways tended to get people into vicious cycles. As Pastor Randy showed last week, well, you may not murder a person, but your anger will kill the relationship with them and poison your heart. That's the vicious cycle. You may not commit actual adultery, but your lust will destroy your relationship with them and with those you love. That's the vicious cycle. You may, not want to, to, you may want to leave your spouse, but divorce will annul not only your marriage, but often the relationships with your family. The vicious cycle. Now in this section, Jesus talks about oaths, justice, and treatment of enemies. Let's look first at what Jesus says about oaths. What's an oath? Well, when I joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 1972, I had to swear an oath, and this is what it said. I, Laurie Ellen McKay, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, according to law, so help me God. And then, later, when I received a higher security clearance, I had to sign another oath. And part of that oath was to, it, it said, that I would never reveal that I'd actually taken this oath. I mean, I think it's probably okay now, but, you know, it's a long time. I don't remember what that one said, except for that part, because they didn't give me a copy. It was top secret. It's probably stuffed in some dusty old box in a basement in Ottawa somewhere. Jesus starts off with, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people of long ago, do not break your oath, 
but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now this seems to be according to the law, as written in Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes an oath to the Lord or takes an oath, an oath to obligate him by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. But the Pharisees looked at oaths differently. And they spent their time trying to make them work to their advantage. Too often, they didn't want to actually fulfill an oath. And so loopholes were introduced. And this is what Jesus gets after them for. In, in Matthew chapter 23, the seven woes, right? The seven woes to the Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath, you blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple, which makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. Wow. Hypocrisy. R.C. Sproul explains this for us. He says, during the first century, as in our day, oaths and vows were open to abuse by people who entered into commitments frivolously. The Pharisees and their successors, the Jewish rabbis of the first few centuries AD, addressed this problem by differentiating binding oaths from those that could be broken with impunity. This only made matters worse. If people had to make a promise that they did not want to keep, they could swear by the temple or the altar and not be held accountable if the oath was never fulfilled. Wow. Swear on the right thing and you're off the hook. A binding oath meant something. Well, a non-binding one was just simply a bunch of hot air. Eugene Peterson gives us a wonderful way of reading these verses in, this, in, is, uh, in the message. And don't say anything you don't mean, he says. The council is in, this council is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk, saying, I will pray for you, and never doing it. Or saying, God be with you, and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. How we have in our own day, and we've seen it not that long ago, we politicized phrases such as, you are in our thoughts and prayers, to the point where people don't want to say it anymore because it sounds so insincere. When Ruth died, we were so fortunate to have so many wonderful people come to us with comforting words. The most touching words weren't promises or, or, or long speeches, but usually simply Things like, I'm sorry. 
meant the most to us. As Grace Wolf can probably attest, when I am called to a hospital bedside as an on-call chaplain, occasionally people are desperate for assurances that they will get well, that this isn't the end for them. They want me to somehow assure them of this. It's as if my prayers for them were somehow binding on God, that whatever I say, God will do for them. As if I could change their fate. I can't give them that assurance, of course. And so I keep my prayers simple to do with their comfort and, their, and peace and hope uh, in their situation. So Jesus turns the Pharisees' tradition of oath manipulation upside down. If you're going to mess with the whole meaning of vows, then don't say anything but a simple yes or no. That's it. That's the transforming initiative. To say yes or no. Don't play with people's lives. Avoid the vicious cycle of pain, fear, and sorrow. Next, he brings up the issue of justice. An eye for an eye really is in the law. See Exodus 21 or Leviticus 24. But is it about justice or revenge? One author says, revenge is getting our needs met through the destruction of our enemies. Now a dictionary of law defines justice as this. Listen carefully. Fairness, moral rightness, a scheme or system of law in which every person receives his or her due from the system, including all rights, both natural and legal. Legalese. The Cambridge Dictionary puts it a bit simpler. Justice is simply this. Fairness in the way people are dealt with. So is it justice or revenge for George Floyd and and those others? Is it justice or revenge that is being sought in the RCMP Armed Forces sexual abuse cases? The law of Moses was set up to ensure that people were dealt with fairly, that they received what was due to them in justice, not in revenge. It wasn't a revenge law. It was a law to not only make sure people received their due, but to ensure that it was done fairly and not excessively. That is why an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth was included, so that no one received more punishment than they were due. You could not lose more than an eye if you put out someone else's eye. And this justice was administered by the court, not by the victim. There was no taking the law into their own hands. Otherwise, they would end up in more vicious cycles of revenge. After all, what's more natural than to want to resist an evil person, to hit back when you're struck, to fight a court battle when someone sues you, and to drag your feet all the way when you're required to walk that mile. But Jesus turns this on his head. He says, no, do not resist that evil person. Don't take revenge. I love the way Eugene Peterson expands verse 42. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. Say, turn the world upside down. 
Practice forgiveness and grace and mercy and love. And that's the transforming initiative. And this leads us right into loving our enemies. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is another portion of the law that the Pharisees turned to their own purposes out of prejudice and, and uh, the need to be in control. The law certainly says love our neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 but it doesn't say that we are to hate our enemy. In fact, quite the opposite is expressed in Exodus chapter 23 verse 4 and 5. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there, but be sure to help them with it. And Proverbs 25, 21 tells us, if your enemy is hungry, give him some food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So there's firm evidence that the traditions of the, the Pharisees here are really wrong. We are not to hate our enemies. Because you will never look into the eyes of someone God does not love. Read that again. You will never look into the eyes of someone God does not love. Never. You can travel the whole world, never see a person who is not loved by God. No one is an enemy to God. He loves everyone, even if they don't love him, even if they hate him. So we are to love them too. As verse 45 tells us, so that we may be children of the Father in heaven, so that we may be his children, reflecting his love in the world. The Greek word used for enemy here is ekthros, which means one who is hateful, hostile, and vicious. So Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. He's saying that we are to love the worst of the worst. So who are your enemies? Only you know that. I know who mine are. I've had a few in my life. And how can we possibly love them? They not, may not be hateful or hostile or vicious. They may be passive aggressive. They may simply be extremely irritating. Maybe they are one of your family or someone who is married into it. Maybe they are a neighbor who doesn't seem to know what a fence means or, or the volume dial on their stereo. What that means. Maybe it's your boss or a co-worker. Maybe it's a person in your church who not only rubs you the wrong way, but gets you downright angry at times. Then again, maybe it's a whole race of people. We've all heard of the terrible crimes committed in the name of race hatred during this pandemic. First, it was the Chinese. It didn't matter that they were born here or that even that they were sixth generation here. If they had a Chinese look, at, look to them, or an Asian look even, they were assaulted. Now it appears it may possibly be people of Indian heritage who may be targeted with fear and hatred because of the 
the, the chance of, of them coming here, bringing the, the terrible uh, pandemic that is there, that's out of control, to here, to us. It's very easy to make a race of people, a whole culture, your enemy. It's easy because we often don't talk to them or connect with them in any meaningful way. I heard the story a few days ago about a company manager who had to call for tech support for her computer system. And as the diagnostic program was downloading, she was chatting with the operator and she asked him where he was. And he said, New Delhi. Knowing how bad the situation was there, she said, how are you doing? He broke down and cried and said, it is terrible here. It is very bad. I have lost someone every day for the past 10 days. Her technical issue forgotten. The manager stayed on the phone with him for almost an hour, just comforting him and consoling him, trying to help him deal with his loss. And, and so that it would give him time away too from the phones ringing every day for 10 days. Can you imagine working up, waking up tomorrow morning and wondering which one of your friends or relatives was going to die that day? I'm going to give you a challenge, a project you want, but uh, uh, something to do to, to, to help you to understand and expand your heart in this area. If you know someone of Indian heritage, check up on them this week, if you haven't already. Go have a properly distant visit, visit with them and ask them how they're doing. I don't think there's anyone here with Indian heritage who hasn't been personally touched by death to the virus in India. Give what comfort you can, but mainly just listen to them. Let them tell you their story. And we'd love to hear from you what you've learned and how you did. And you know what? Maybe the next week, find someone from another heritage, from another country that is also suffering badly from the pandemic and ask them how you're doing. Who knows? Over time you may come to love a whole bunch of countries and cultures. We have several Indian families down the street with whom we chat from time to time. I'm not sure I have the courage to go and ask them if they lost any family or friends, but I'm gonna try. By the way, Keep Vivi's parents in your prayers in Thailand. They have both become ill with COVID. Her dad was on a ventilator. So whoever your enemies are, whoever you perceive them to be, and there's a difference there, love them, pray for them. And as Eugene Peterson put it, let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. Did you hear that? 
Let your enemies bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. You know, we know so little about most people. Even those who are closest to us, we don't often know the traumas, the abuse, the hurt, the neglect, the hatred that formed their early life, that brought them to this point in their life. The effects of those things may be what, it, what makes them look like enemies in our eyes. But instead of judgment from us, what they need is mercy and love. Anna Wilkie, who was a summer intern in 2018 for an agency called Care for AIDS in countries such as Kenya, wrote a beautiful blog about her experiences and how it changed her faith and her outlook. This is what she said. How often do we let our pride and sinful nature get the best of us and neglect to show others the mercy we were shown in Jesus? How often do we lose opportunities to show the world, the overwhelming love and extravagant mercy of our Father by withholding mercy from the people in our lives who need it the most. Mercy is a display of God's abundant nature. We are sinful people and we absolutely do not deserve the goodness and love our Father shows us. But each and every time we stray, He relentlessly calls us back to Him and shows us incomprehensible grace and mercy. When we understand the wildness of God's never-ending mercy, we will be compelled to live it out in our own lives. If we believe what the Bible says is true, we are made in the image of God. That we are made in the image of God and called to live like it in the world. It should change the way we view others and how we treat them. Amazing young lady. The way of the world as we've seen it in our lifetime, for sure, and maybe even more lately, is, is to let fear control us. And then to hate whatever it is we fear and don't understand. And then to strike out at what it is we hate and we fear. But we are told expressly that that is not our way of living. Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. A well-known verse, but truly what it says, about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are to let the overwhelming flood of God's mercy and grace and love pour through our hearts. And then we are to allow, well, open the floodgates really, and allow that love and grace and mercy to flood out, to gush out, and refresh those who need it the most, the ones we call our enemies that you may know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
Uh, there's that word. You're all wondering how I'm going to deal with this last verse in this passage, aren't you? The one that says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's one of those verses we can't really understand. How can we be as perfect as God is? Well, the Greek word for perfect here is teleos, which is used in other parts of the scriptures to mean mature and adult. And so I can't put it any better than how Eugene Peterson put it. In a word, what I am saying is this, grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others, the way God lives towards you. That is the transforming initiative that sums up this whole section of scripture and how Jesus took all of those misplaced traditions and turned them around and actually showed how God's law is full of love and how we are to use it in love and mercy and grace. That it may free us from the vicious cycles of fear and hate and sorrow and revenge. These three you herds that we've looked at today take us away from the pattern of the world or even from some of those church traditions that misrepresent God's heart and lead us through to the true meaning of God's law and how it is to be used not to hurt, hurt or judge or shame or blame but to love and to care. Can we do that? Can we live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards us? Can we make those who wrong us, who are our enemies, shake their heads in wonder at the evidence of God's love in our lives? Can we stop the vicious cycles of fear and hate and blame and judgment can we turn their world upside down? I believe we can with God's help. So be imperfect in God's love, grace, and mercy. Go and turn the world upside down. Let us pray. Lord, may we be your love and your grace and your mercy to a broken world, to a world where fear seems to rule more than love. May we be your love to those who we think of as our enemies, to those that well, we'd rather throw a brick at them than, than actually sit down and love them. Lord, change our hearts. Take your words that Jesus has taught us and change us that we may be your love and grace in this world.
Thank you and praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Well, thanks so much for entering into our service once again. Uh, so many great elements in it. A beautiful final hymn to sing as we all want more of Jesus in our lives. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, teaching us how to become more like him. So I invite you to open your hands as we close off for our closing blessing and benediction. As you go from this service, may you know that you can be more like Jesus, as we all, by the Spirit, can have more of Jesus in us. Go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.